Welcome to another author event at the Poison Pen Bookstore. I'm John Charles, and tonight the Poison Pen is delighted to have with us local author Jennifer Grazier Dornbush, whose new book is The Last One Alive. Before we begin, for those tuning in, the Poison Pen does have signed copies of Jennifer's new book, and we would be happy to hold one for you or put one in the mail. It makes the perfect gift for someone on your special reading list this Christmas. Give us a call at the Poison Pen, and we'll be happy to connect you with this truly wonderful suspense novel. Now I'd like to welcome Jennifer. Thank you. Thank you. I always like to begin with authors by having them tell us a little bit about themselves before they became published, because there's always a story there, especially <laughs> in your case. Yes. So why don't you tell us about Jennifer pre-publication? Oh, goodness. Jennifer pre-publication. Um, oh, my goodness. Where do I start? Uh, I think I'll start with... Um, the impetus to all of this, all of the writing that gets infused into pretty much every story I do comes from um, how I grew up, which um, I grew up in a small community in western Michigan. And my father was the medical examiner for a couple counties there. And the office for the medical examiner was in our house. And so I grew up around death, investigation, and forensic science, and the whole nine yards, and it was just sort of a family business. <laughs> um, so uh, that, was, that was my childhood um, and infused a lot, of, a lot of the experiences and things that I experienced as a child uh, get infused into my writing. These are not biographical <laughs> or autobiographical, uh, but there's definitely a lot of inspiration from the things that I saw growing up. But I actually came to authoring a bit later in life. So I went to college in Chicago and from there I did public relations and fundraising. And then I got a master's and started teaching high school and college. I did some journalism along the side and then, um, and teaching, I did a, a lot of teaching and actually started when I started to finally, you get to that point in your life where you're like, huh, um, it's, it's, it's like, I knew I had this passion and this calling from a very young age of um, wanting to be a storyteller. And so you get to that point where you're like, well, are you going to do it or not? You know? And so I actually dove into screenwriting first and that's, um, this series actually started as my, was my first script that I wrote back in 2002, long time ago. So I started, um, learning screenwriting, worked and lived in LA for about 14 years. And along that path, also picked up novel writing. Was your first um, published book actually nonfiction? Is that correct? The first public, yeah. yeah, the first published book was actually nonfiction. Um, it's called Forensic Speak. And it's really, it's, an, it's a guide to forensics, actually. And it was published because uh, it was actually... Um, I'll, I'll start back. I'll go back to the story. I, when I was in LA and I was working on being a screenwriter, one of the things my mentors always told me was it's not good enough to be a great writer because it's so competitive. And they're like, what makes you stand out? And it had to sort of be pointed out to me <laughs> that all this stuff I knew about forensics was unique. I just kind of thought everybody knew about this. Um, and they said, you should lean into that. And I did. And I went back to school actually to get more training in forensics and found that I was really interested in it. And as part of my graduation, I wrote a, a manual 
on forensics or a forensic boot camp for people like me, for writers, for people that who are working in film and television. And um, a very good friend really pushed me into getting it published. So that was, yeah, my first published work. <laughs> Did that kind of transition then into your suspense mysteries writing? Um, it was, it was coincided with, because I, I, you know, when you start writing, you ask yourself, what am I going to write about? <laughs> it's kind of the first question. And as I was generating ideas and trying to figure out with my mentors, what direction to go, all these kind of mystery ideas, they just started bubbling up. And I really hadn't connected it to the fact that I had grown up with a lot of this stuff. And they said, plug into that, plug into that. And so that was, yeah, that was sort of, again, it kind of had to be pointed out to me, but I plugged in and that's how it happened. So, Which brings us to your new book, which is Last One Alive. It's the third in the series, but it can be read as a separate book. What can you tell us about that book and its protagonists? Ah, yes. Okay. Last one alive. Um, yes, it can be read as a standalone, although I would recommend the first two just because you're going to be missing out on a lot of Emily's journey. So Dr. Emily Hartford is our protagonist through the series, and she is a young, budding, amazing surgeon, also the daughter of a coroner who lives in Chicago. And um, she, in the first book, she gets called back to her small hometown to deal with a father who is not doing well. And she gets roped into this forensic world that she left purposely left. And I'm not going to tell you why, cause I want you to, I don't want to spoil anything. Um, so <laughs> the series is really based on her and it's really a story of homecoming and really a story of a, a young woman trying to figure out where does she really belong and what does that look like in her life and going kind of and going back to her roots and realizing she grew up around this world of forensic investigation and death investigation. And it was so um, pivotal and important in, in how she was connected to the community. And so anyway, she keeps getting drawn back. Last one alive. She's is starts where she's back in Chicago. And she's like, no, I'm, I'm living in Chicago. I've got this great boyfriend slash almost fiance that I'm going to try to work things out with. And she gets called back to her hometown because there's a, a young woman who realized, um, who gets, um, whose family has been murdered 10 years ago and she gets an opportunity on her 30th birthday to delve into the past and try to figure out why they were murdered. It's an unsolved case. And her, and the, Dr. Emily's father worked on the case. So the woman calls her and says, I need your help. And she's like, I, I have nothing to do with this, but she gets roped into going back and, um, solving this case with this young woman. Um, so I, I think the third one is definitely more suspenseful and more of a thrill ride. Um, the first two I think are more traditional mystery. And then there was like a three and a half year gap. And I think in the mean, in that three and a half year gap, I think it become more of like a suspense thriller kind of writer. writer. <laughs> well, she, um, Emily kind of has to get back into it because if she doesn't, there's the question of whether or not her father, her deceased father, her late father may have been 
wrong about yeah, the decision. Exactly. Yep. Yep. As she's explored, because she has to go back and look at her father's work and figure out, and there's sort of a, uh, I don't want to give it away, but she, uh, she's, there's some questions as she needs to answer to kind of prove her father's, um, hmm, prove her father's metal, Correct. I guess. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You've been a screenwriter. Um, do you find when you're writing mysteries that you borrow tools from your screenwriter's toolkit? All the time. Okay. Screenwriting has been absolutely foundational to be a novelist. Um, because in screenwriting, it's very, very focused on structure. It's very tight writing. And so I found that it, it helps me tremendously as an author um, because I know structure, I know character, I know how to plot things um, and dialogue. I mean, so much is, you have to get the dialogue right. So it was, it was a good transition, actually. Very good transition. Let's talk a little bit about research because you know forensics, but even when you're writing fiction, you have to find out facts about things. You can't just make everything up. Right. True. And it, uh, <laughs> well, you, can, you can, but... <laughs> you can, but then you're writing fantasy. Right, yeah. yes. <laughs> um, in your book, there's lots of little details, like she goes to a bank and she is opening... She didn't realize there was a savings deposit, I guess, mm -hmm. um, account left for her name. How do you find out, like, can people really leave money in a savings deposit? bank what right how, how do you find out all these things <laughs> um yeah i i love research i love it um so i i ask um i try i do rely on google for like my initial research i like the internet to kind of get me started but my favorite type of research is talking with people talking with bankers talking i still talk to a lot of forensic specialists and people in that field because it's a huge field and i certainly only know you know a fraction of it so i love um i get a lot of my research from just talking with people who who do that thing that i need the information from <laughs> You do know forensics, and for those of us readers who only know forensics from shows like CSI or, if you're old enough, Quincy M.E. I love Quincy. Yeah. <laughs> um, what does television get wrong that you are screaming at the screen saying no? <laughs> Everybody always like, what do they get wrong? What do they get wrong? I have to be careful because I also work in television. <laughs> so, <laughs> but... Um, I actually ha teach a whole workshop on this and there are a lot of things they get wrong, but there are good reasons why they get them wrong or why they have to get them wrong. Um, the biggest one that you'll see all the time is time shifting, right? Because like, for instance, a little, you get a little sample of uh, an, a piece of evidence, a biological sample or a little piece of trace evidence and they run to the lab and within five seconds they have the answer or like blood work or toxicology. It, of course, it doesn't work that way in real life. It takes like six to eight weeks, normal normal time or longer. And but you can't do that in television, right? You we can't wait six to eight weeks for the plot to unfold. <laughs> so, so things like that. Um, yeah, they're gonna they're gonna have to fudge that a little. But you know, you have to. There's some things you have to. So, um, I what I've noticed is that. Um, like when I was growing up, other than Quincy, which my father watched copiously, and so it was always on in our house. Um, other than that, there weren't a lot of these kinds of shows. And I think it was like probably mid 90s ish, when, especially when CSI came on the air, that there was this flood of these shows and this really huge interest surged. 
And I've seen that the forensics gets better and better because I think as viewers, we're kind of, we're wanting that too. Um, of course, sometimes it's sort of over the top, but um, again, for dramatic value, like we're watching TV because it's entertainment, not because we're watching, you know, a documentary. So. <laughs> yeah, but you do want them to get things right, right. to a degree. Yeah. Right. And also truth is, is stranger than fictions, yeah. uh, way stranger. So I always say, research get the you know find what really happens because you may find that it's actually a lot more interesting than if you tried to just fudge it so yeah last uh one alive is about a cold case and you actually are involved with a foundation called the cold case foundation what can you tell us about that and why is it so important to go back and look at these cold cases yeah that's such a good question and um i got involved with the cold case foundation and mostly I just promote them and support them and just try to shout them out whenever I can, because they're an amazing organization. Um, I got involved with them when I was writing my novel hole in the woods, which is based on a true cold case. It's a, um, fictional true, not it's, it's no, it's, it's actually fiction. It's like a, a true crime drama, a fictional drama, but, um, I found them very surreptitiously and, and just fell in love with what they do um, because they, they're all former or retired law enforcement or FBI or forensic specialists. Everybody volunteers their time. They'll take cases from all over the United States and it's, it's all free. Um, so if you had a case or a law enforcement agency has a case that they're really trying, you know, really need some more eyes on, they can bring it to this foundation and they can, they'll reach out to their huge now is a pretty big pool of resources of specialists and, and professionals to say, Hey, can you take, I need new eyes on this case because sometimes that's all you need is just a fresh set of eyes. And the resources in this country are so there's just not enough resources to be looking at, at cold cases and the cold case list just keeps growing and growing. So, um, they're doing a phenomenal service and from the, t I think I met them four or five years ago and they're, they've just exploded. They're just busy all the time. So. Do you think part of the reason there's been such a resurgence or a surgence of interest in it is because we had to wait for technology to catch up? That's part of it. Definitely part of it. Um, the, I, it's, it's also just the fact that there's fewer and fewer, there's just not a lot of human resource time to go through all these cases, um, and to retest things. So I think that's a big part of it too, is like people are becoming aware of, um, wanting justice or realizing that they can, they can go back and get and try, keep trying, um. But I think technology has a really big part to play in it as well. Well, it kind of impacts Emily in the book because she mm -hmm. runs into, I guess, professional jealousy. I'm not sure what the word is. People don't <laughs> want other people stepping in their territory or right. dealing with it. How do you how do you get around that? Right. Okay, that's made up. <laughs> that's one of those things we fudge <laughs> for drama for dramatic sake because in real life um agencies are very cooperative with each other and es especially after 9-11 um the open source and the communication between agencies just it just opened up and um 
so I, that is something we kind of fudge as writers and on on screen <laughs> for dramatic effect for dramatic effect yes let's talk about your writing process because you are writing mysteries in addition to other things and suspense novels when you sit down to write fiction do you always know things like the clues you're going to plant, the suspect? Because there's a lot of a twists lot. and turns in, in this particular book, and I'm mm -hmm. sure in your other books as well. Or do you just sit down and open a page and hope it all comes together? Um, a little bit of both. As a screenwriter, I was taught to structure and to plot and to do copious treatments. Um, everything starts with a treatment. That's how you sometimes you sell a project. So... I definitely brought that over to my authoring world because I like, I like to have a very good idea where I'm going because it gives me security and comfort <laughs> because the blank page is scary and daunting and I could do like an, a million other things than stare at a blank page. So if I have a direction where I'm going and I'm like, oh, I have to write this scene today, at least I have a paragraph that I can start with when I sit down for the day, but then I love also, I don't depend on that because I love the process of just the mystery and the surprise because it always happens. And it's, it's very hard to explain, um, but there's always things every time I sit down that happen that I was like, wow, I don't know where that came from, but there it is and it works. And so, I don't know. It's a great mystery, the mystery of the mystery. <laughs> Um, how much input do you have as an author into the external factors like book jackets and titles? Because Last One Alive is a really great title. Thank you. It kind you. of captures the, but I know some authors are, just don't get involved and others are very hands-on. Um, I had a lot, well, I did come up with the title and I'm struggling to come up with a title for the fourth one. <laughs> the fourth one is in edits right now. So I do have a lot of autonomy and control over that, which is good and bad because I'm struggling with the next one. But, um, and like book jackets, um, Blackstone is amazing. Like they come up with all the design and then when they were ready, they gave me like eight proofs to look at and then, Hey, what do you think of these? And then I could give my input on what I liked, what I didn't like, what I wanted to move around and stuff. So, but they did a great job. So I'm happy. <laughs> You've been writing for a while now. Um, if you could go back to when you were first starting out and give yourself some advice about the business of writing, what would you tell yourself? Oh my goodness. That's such a good question. Um, that it's going to take a lot longer than you think. <laughs> um, be patient with yourself. Um, it's a really good writing. It's a really good exercise in patience and perseverance. Uh, I think just to confidence uh, that if you just continue to keep going, put the work and time in, do what you need to do to get feedback and improve your craft that you, you will move, keep moving forward. Um, yeah. Let's switch gears a bit and talk about Jennifer as a reader, because yes. who are some of the authors that have impacted you? Oh um, you write <clears throat> the Spence and Mystery. Is that what you enjoy reading? Do you read other kinds of books? What has your journey as a reader been like? My journey as a reader started when I was a baby because my parents read to us. Reading was so important 
in our home. And to the point where as, I mean, I have a book, I have bookshelves lining my office. Some of you have seen them <laughs> and I keep giving books away and I, they, it still looks the same. Um, so I can't even say that there's like one, one type of book or one book that was pivotal, but reading was so important and independent bookstores were so important. Cause I grew up in a town where there were no bookstores and there was no Barnes and Noble. There was no Amazon. And so once a month or so, when we would go to the big city of Grand Rapids, my parents would take us to a, an independent bookstore and we would have a little bit of money. And they were like, you pick out a book. And that's what we got to do. You pick out a book, you buy a book, you buy a book. So it's this and the library every summer we did the library reading programs. We were always at the library. So reading is, is just to me, like breathing. It's, I'm always reading something. Um, I read a large variety of things. Um, yes, I read mystery writers cause I like to see what everybody's doing, what they're write, writing about in their style. I read a lot of nonfiction because I love, um, learning and research and, I read newspapers. I read magazines. Um, I read blogs. I read, I don't know. I, it's a, it's quite a wide variety kind of whatever my, wherever my interest goes. Um, and I think that's what it's good to like, keep feeding that curiosity. So, yeah. What do you think are the key ingredients to a successful series? Because you've written a series. I think I'm still figuring that out. <laughs> I, um, I really am still figuring that out. Um, I hope to have a better answer after a few more books. <laughs> but I know personally my goal is I want to have readers keep turning pages. Um, and I, I want them to come away with a sense that they've been entertained, yes, but a sense that maybe um, things that were maybe dark are now maybe a little bit lighter or have a little bit of hope. Um, uh, yeah, I just, I want them to be able to go on, um, on a journey and feel satisfied. So, yeah. Okay. This is a rather unique question, but I have to ask it. Is it true that your Barbie had a body bag? <laughs> have you ever asked anybody else that question? <laughs> yes. Our Barbie had a body bag. There has to be a story behind that. There's a story behind it. And um, I just saw the body bag when I was home in Michigan a couple of months ago. It still exists. Um, yeah, so, like I said, my father's office was in our home. And so when everybody came, the morticians, the police, the body bag vendors, mm -hmm. show at the door, vending their body bags, hawking their wares. <laughs> and um, so... <laughs> They showed up and, you know, I guess I didn't see the exchange. I wasn't privy to that, but I guess they had given some samples because there are different types of body bags for different situations. And, um, we can go over that later. Um, it's, not normal. it's, I know, I know it's not normal. Um, and so when they left, my sisters and I, I am the oldest of, of three, um, we saw these and we're like, oh, cool. Can we have those for our Barbies? <laughs> I, don't, yeah, I don't know. They were the perfect size and they were so cute. And they were real, like real material body bags. I don't know. Who knew? Um, 
puts a whole new whole new meaning to the Barbie movie this summer, right? Like, there's a sequel now. We need a sequel. <laughs> Barbie Coroner, yeah. Barbie Coroner. Um, if you were to commit a crime, what are the things that you would want to avoid doing forensic-wise? Oh, my goodness. Oh, it is so hard to commit a crime these days and get away with it. Because we are saturated in digital evidence <laughs> and DNA evidence is getting better and better. Um, oh, man. It's funny to ask that, right? Because as a crime writer, you're you're mapping out, like when I start to write a story, I make my own case file. And so you're you're solving it already. Like you know that you're there people are going to leave evidence. Everybody does. It's the old um Lockhart exchange principle. Every every exchange leaves a trace. So I I think it's almost impossible, honestly. Especially now these days. I mean, it's not impossible because people obviously get away with it, but um you'd have to definitely be in a place where there's no digital evidence. You'd have to make sure you're not leaving any physical evidence, which is really hard. Um no footprints. Yeah. But we live in a world where maybe you'd have to go somewhere really remote. <laughs> I was thinking, is it easier in a small town or someplace like that versus I don't think a big it, city? I don't think it is anymore, honestly. In fact, maybe even less because in small towns, you have more prying eyes. In big cities, you I think actually in big cities, it's may, maybe, and you know, we could test this theory all day long, it might in some cases be easier because people are wrapped up in themselves and they're not looking... They don't know each other. Like all the yeah. cameras, like on cameras. traffic stop mm -hmm. signs and things. Digital like that. evidence everywhere. Houses, rings. Everybody's That's got the right. ring doorbells, and it's hard. Yeah, yeah. You've mentioned that you're working on a couple other projects. Is there anything you can tell us about them? Uh, let's see. Hmm. Some of them are film and TV projects, and. That's always nefarious. <laughs> Everything's like, we'll see if it happens. Um, my agent's pitching a couple projects that I'm hoping will will take off. Um, one is actually just a true crime memoir, nonfiction, um, which I'm in love with. And I've been working on it for three years. And it's I've been working with these two sisters whose father was a very notorious serial killer. And so I've been interviewing them and talking with them and we've written the manuscript and they're out pitching it and we're getting feedback and seeing where it's going to land. Um, but their, their story is quite incredible. And um, at the end of the day though, it's very, has a lot of hope because they did survive and they did come out of it semi-normally. Like they're very pretty well adjusted and, um, they want to just inspire people who have gone through great suffering that like you can persevere, you can get out of it and um, you can have a good life. So, but the stuff they went through is pretty fascinating. Um, so I've, I've, it's been a real honor to be able to tell their story because um, their, their father's story has been told uh, many times um, and their mother has told her side, but they've never told their side and it's a very different side very different so fingers crossed <laughs> yeah you mentioned your screenwriting um projects were you in, 
Well, I'm guessing, but I could be wrong. You were impacted by the strike? I was. Yep, yep. Everything stopped for what, 146 what we, days. <laughs> what do people who don't know about that, do you want to tell them? Because we kind of were on the outside looking in. Yeah, sure. yeah. Um, well, I'm always curious to know what people on the outside think. Um, yeah, I mean, basically, the Writers Guild is the Guild of Association of Film and TV Writers. And um, pretty much everything you watch on film or TV is typically written by a guild writer. There are non-guild writers who also write, but, um, uh, so yeah, when, when the writers went on strike, all the production stopped <laughs> because there were no writers to write shows and films. And we had some pretty big asks, uh, but we were getting trampled on by, by quite a bit. And the landscape of how media works has changed really fast so we needed to change them to change with us and we got what we wanted so it was good it's good so now everything's slowly going back into production and artificial intelligence really is gonna impact um, we people who don't write or deal with it we don't yeah. think about it but that yeah. is major it's major and that was one of the big points that we were saying no artificial intelligence and we had there was a lot i mean it's very detailed what we were asking for but we were really emphatic in saying like no we we are not going to use it and we don't want you using it and um so we need you guys to agree to that so <laughs> so we can be assured that from now on, productions, for the most part, are not going to be right. written by a computer somewhere in right. Venezuela or something. Right, exactly. Yeah. Right. How can readers learn more about your books and you? Are you on social media? I am on Instagram. Um, that's my media social media of choice. Uh, my website has a lot of stuff on it. It's just my name, jenniferdornbush.com. And uh, while you're there, you can sign up for new my newsletter. I send one out monthly. And that's sort of my insider stuff where you get all the news and the things that are going on and um, contests and what's coming up and stuff that I don't post on social media all the time. <laughs> um, so that's those are the three main things. Yeah, newsletter, website, and Instagram. Instagram. I think this is the point where we usually take questions from your fans and readers. So do we have any questions for Jennifer other than Barbie related? <laughs> question. Lady in the first room. Everybody always asks that. Um, and I'm like, I don't know what you watch, but I don't know what you're watching. But uh, a lot of it's interesting because, yes, I will point to you to one project that's on Netflix. But a lot of things that screenwriters do never get made. So I've done a lot of those projects. And I'm working on a lot of things that I'm hoping will get made. Um, about five years ago now, um, I actually wrote an inspirational film and novel, nothing to do with crime, all heart. <laughs> and so that's on Netflix. It's called God Bless the Broken Road. Um, so, so got some fans here. <laughs> but yeah, there's many things coming up that, yeah, fingers crossed. COVID. <laughs> yeah um it's the whole industry is sort of everywhere now so fortunately because i kind of put 
put my dues in over there for 14 years and made a lot of connections and those all came with me. So, yeah. And actually too, I'm working with a couple, um, companies in the UK and they have a lot of, you know, production going on over there. So it's really kind of everywhere right now. So other questions way in the back. Good. Yeah, what's my plan? Um, so there are two more books for sure coming um, in this series. And then hopefully we'll see what happens and maybe we'll get some more picked up. Um, that would be fun. Uh, and then, yes, I... The book that I was talking about, Hole in the Woods, we're pitching that out as a series. At first it was a standalone, and then my agent's like, no, you need to keep going. So I'm working on pitching that out as a series. And yeah, that's kind of what's on my plate at the moment. Any other questions? There are a couple that are coming from our online audience. Oh, Kara? Oh. Nope. Oh, thank you, Miss Kara. I'd say buy her books. Read, yes. Just read and share. <laughs> yeah. I'm just hoping you'll like them. <laughs> don't share them if you don't like them. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. one thing you can do is, I know a lot of people don't buy books, but they go to a library. Mm -hmm. Suggest that your library purchase her books because you have that ability in most public libraries to do that. That's a good point because a lot, a lot, libraries only, you know, they have a certain budget for books and they get, you know, certain books, but yeah, you definitely can request your li local library to have them. So, in fact, can I tell a fun story about that? So, about libraries. Um, uh, so, m my aunt, who lives in Michigan, she <clears throat> emailed me recently and she said, Oh, we're so excited about your book and yay, we've got it and we can't wait for you to come home and sign it. Blah, blah, blah. And she's like, Oh, by the way, my sister, who lives in New York City, went to the library to, to get your new book to read. And there was a waiting list of 66 people. Wow. And I was like, What? <laughs> that, it makes that is like worth so much to me. <laughs> so, yeah, that was really cool. Really, really special moment. Virtual questions? I'm sorry? Audiobooks? They are all on audio. Yes. I love them. And I love Sophie Amos is the editor. She's done, or the narrator, and she's done all three. And she, I love how she speaks. I love how she tells the story. Very happy. We've noticed that that's a big rising yeah it's yeah i love audio books any good just kind of boilerplate advice for for new writers who are trying to break into the field yeah that's a great question any advice for new writers trying to break into the field <clears throat> um right <laughs> I know that sounds, it's hard when you're young to find time, or I don't mean young, young, but like when you're starting out, whether you're young or old or whatever, in between, it's hard to time, find time to write and you will, you will never write and finish if you don't do it. And I know that sounds so simple and probably every writer you've heard says that, but when I was first starting and I came to this later in, 
in my life. I was teaching high school full time, which is exhausting, by the way. <laughs> I was loving it, but it's exhausting. And I would, I was like, if I'm going to do this, I have to set up a, a tangible schedule for myself. It can't just be like, I have to write when I feel like it. No, that's not the reality of a writer's life. It's not the reality today. When I sit down to write, there are many days I'd rather be actually doing my laundry or cleaning my house than writing. Um, which says a lot, um, cause I don't like to do either of those things. Um, and actually my husband does most of the laundry. So, <laughs> um, so when I was teaching, I made a vow when I first start le was learning, I was screenwriting and I had gone to this, um, this month long seminar in the summer cause I was off for the summers. And when I started the school year, I said, I'm going to do this for one year. I'm going to commit for one year after I would teach. I would come home at three or three 30 and I would sit myself in my seat in front of my computer for two hours before dinner. And whether I wrote one page or one scene or five pages, that's where I was for five days a week. And I did that over and over and over for a year. And then I had the discipline. I had the habit and it became a part of me. And that's really the best advice because there's all the other stuff will come later. You can figure out all the other stuff later, but if you don't have anything, if you're not doing the thing you want to do or think you want to do, then you're not figuring out. So I had two questions for myself that year. Do I like this? <laughs> um, and am I any good at it? And after the end of that year, I was able to answer that question, those questions. Um, yes. And yes. So, but if you don't do it, you don't know. And then you don't know if you should continue. And yeah. So other questions. I'll give you one last one. Okay. Um, you've written a number of different kinds of things. You've written novels, mm -hmm. you've written nonfiction, you've written short stories. Mm -hmm. Is any one of them easier than the other? Do you write them in the same way? Oh, goodness. Um, I, I don't think that any of them are easier than the other because at the end of the day, you have to break the story and that's the hard part. Whether it's, uh, you know, 10,000 words for a short story or, 120 pages for a screenplay or 80,000 words for a novel, you have to sit down and do all the work of figuring out your characters and their plot and all the backstory of the characters and what they're going to do and how it's going to beginning, middle, end. And it's all the same work. But yeah. Valuable advice. Um, last chance. Okay. We're going to thank Jennifer Dornbush for being with us tonight with her new book, Last One Alive. Thank we do have copies of her book up front. If you'd like to purchase them for you or for a friend for Christmas, um, Jennifer would be happy to sign copies. I'm sure I'd like to thank you for joining us tonight and virtual audience. Thank you for another author chat at the Poison Pen Bookstore. Thank you. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.